Welcome to the Wellbeing Rebellion, the podcast that's changing workplace cultures for good. We're your hosts, Ngazi Wella and Obehi Alafoje. Let's get this rebellion started. I'm going to be honest and admit something that might not win me many fans on this podcast. Like what? My name's Ngazi. And I, no. <laughs> What I want to admit is that before we started Aurora, I have to be really honest, I didn't have a lot of respect for HR as a profession. Mm. Sorry, but it, HR doesn't have the best reputation amongst employees. And that's how I'd experienced human resources before, was just as an employee. I used to think that HR were just a lot of jobs with busybodies. And they were just there to make sure that nobody broke the rules. And if they did, they were the first to jump on punishment. That's what I thought. I really couldn't understand why anyone ever wanted to go into human resources as a career. It was like choosing a career as a professional teacher's pet. <laughs> okay. Well, well, yeah. I didn't think for sure. I never thought that HR were on my side as an employee. And especially when I got sick with, mm. with my mental health. Definitely. Did you? Yeah. Well, I'm, I remember you saying that you, cause I remember asking if you talk to HR, you said I, I didn't even bother. I remember that feeling that was very odd because for the organizations that I, I work for, nonprofit and, and stuff, if, HR, to be fair, yes, it wasn't like I thought they part of strategic planning or anything, but it was more admin. But I did find them helpful. As a manager, when I started managing a team, that if I was struggling with how to manage them, performance stuff, that I could call them and they'll give me some ideas. And usually the ideas weren't here's how to get rid of them. <laughs> it was really, oh, have you tried this? So I found them actually quite supportive. What I'm learning now is that wasn't their only job. And, but I didn't know that there were other strategies, strategic thinking, that they should have been part of the CEO boardroom. I knew they weren't part of it based on what I experienced from them. So I just thought they were like a bit, ah, this is how I saw them. A bit like I have guidance counsellors at school. They're not part of the main, you know, governing body or the senior leadership, but they're there to support the student. Because that was my experience, actually. Like, okay. guidance counsellors there to support me, but you don't have much power well, to, to change any stuff. That was that was definitely not my experience as an employee. And I, I had HR um, professionals who were friends of mine. But whenever it was, oh, I think you should go and see HR, it was not a good thing. So, um, oh, well, two different perspectives. But I'll be honest, since we started Aurora and I've been doing this work, I've done a complete 180. And my uh, opinion of HR professionals has changed completely yeah in my experience you guys are some of the most caring hard-working self-sacrificing and misunderstood people in the organization i definitely would agree with that i thought the job was to just firefight really you are 
also one of the most important. But here's the rub. So few of you act like it. That's why in this episode of The Wellbeing Rebellion, we want to talk about how HR can leverage their leadership position to better serve their employees. So the pandemic seemed to really instantly promote HR from, let's say, from the kids' table to the grown-ups' table in the boardroom, right? So even though they were always there, suddenly human resources manager, the HRD, was the most important person on the team and everybody was looking to you for guidance. We'd never been through something like this before. It had everything to do with people. Um, You had sickness, absence, bereavement. Um, You had uh, to manage... Mental health stuff became just became full force during that time. Yeah. 2020 was all about mental health of staff trying to cope with the pandemic, working from home, homeschooling kids, yeah. all of that pressure that came. And everything. And all of a sudden, they were like, hey, child, what should we do now? Like, oh, I see. So I can imagine for you guys in my head, because how I see. Then you're probably thinking, well, now you come and find me. Now you see me. Well, you, you definitely had to pull out all the stops if you were in HR. I know because I was there supporting you guys. You were working flat out, reworking policies, managing absences, keeping in touch with staff, fielding internal and external communications. I remember people used to, in, in HR, the, the colleagues that I had um, started to make over the years, you guys are working constantly. When the whole furlough thing kicked in, mm-hmm. you were the ones who were still keeping the lights on. And it was really exciting, but it was a difficult time for most. And that's when we started that support group on LinkedIn, um, the HR Foundry. Foundry. Yeah. Yeah. It was a complimentary space that was safe so that all the HR professionals that we were encountering on a daily basis could get guidance, support, coaching, and networking from us. I remember that, actually. I remember that we started it because we would talk to HR who was saying, hey, can you come and deliver a workshop for... Um, for this team or that team and, and whatever, and, you know, people are struggling. And we could see them, you know, and guys would literally see them pulling hair out and looking quite stressed. And then we would say, you all right? Mm-hmm. And then they'd be like, oh, I'm like, listen, you can talk to us because here we are, right? <laughs> if, we, if you can't talk to us, who can you right now? And it would come out that, that you know, that very overwhelmed, it's all on their shoulders. They have to put themselves at the bottom of the list. Um, mm. But provided everybody was going to be okay, that was enough for them. And we're like, no, that's not enough, really. You need to be able to have space to be able to, to talk about the struggles you're experiencing. Mm. But then they were like, oh, but we can't do that, you know, at work. Like, well, that's fine. We'll create a space. Hence why we had the LinkedIn group. It's probably still there, but we, obviously we haven't used it for like a year and a half or something. But I thought that was a really great time, a confidential. We started having um, opportunity for one-to-one small group stuff that we were doing, which was fascinating. I love that period. So I'm glad we got to do it. And that's where I got the opportunity to see just how deeply most human resource professionals care about their role and how hard you guys work to get things done right. I describe HR as type A1 people. That's my kind of people, by the way. <laughs> the kind who really care about 
getting things done to the very best of their ability um, because they know it's important for others. And even though we're through the worst of the pandemic, apparently, in my experience, most of you guys are still struggling to really own your place in the boardroom. So I have a question. What do you think that your job as an HR manager or HR director, PNC lead, whatever, Mm -hmm. what do you think your job is? And what do you think it should be? If you are a rebel like us, then you'll be with us when we say that your primary job as a function is to enable each employee to thrive in your organization. Simply put, you're there to help make work, work. And that means you have to be the champions of healthy cultures and mental well-being. So Westfield did some research and they researched over 400 different HR leaders in the UK. They questioned them and found that the biggest barriers to well-being implementation were a lack of buy-in from senior leadership at 31% and also limited budgets at 25%. And I know, because you've told me, (laughs) that is really hard to secure senior leadership buy-in for larger investments when there are lower rung well-being solutions out there. So it's hard to convince your CEO, CFOs, um, COOs of the need to invest in six-month, 12-month, even three-month programs for mental health, well-being, um, employee engagement, when they can just put on a webinar or do a talk or do a two-day MHFA training. It's hard to pitch for this investment um, for comprehensive programs because there are courses that appear to solve the entire well-being needs of the whole workforce inside a day seminar. But you know deep down that these courses aren't going to be as effective. Many HR professionals you can feel the pressure from your C-suite leaders to like kind of just tick the well-being box with the smallest possible outlay. But you know it's not going to work. If it could work, it would have worked by now. You get what you pay for. And cheap and condensed courses offer a condensed solution. They offer less of a transformation and much more of a transaction. And moreover, this initial attempt to save money will ultimately backfire because the outlay for these courses always seems small enough to be worth a shot. If they fail to deliver, the delay that that causes in receiving effective support to employees in need that can translate to a significant loss in productivity and a big hit for the bottom line. So ultimately, the only real option is to ensure that your company has a robust budget to support 
the kind of comprehensive well-being strategies that transform your company's culture. However, we do know that it's really hard to secure such funds and to get the buy-in you need for significant longer-term investments. That's why we've put together our three essential tips for pitching to a senior leadership team. Okay, essential tip number one, know your shit. Provide data-driven insight. The figures are on your side. There are many um, researches, data, they've been out for the last three, four, five years, um, and they've been consistent throughout, so you don't have to make anything up. Wellbeing support makes good business sense. It's facts now. So don't go into meetings with senior leadership team to only make the moral argument. Rely on the numbers. Numbers don't lie. Refer to the return of investment and demonstrate that investment in wellbeing is financially sound. Now, large organizations like the ones you guys used to work with, so the super mega companies, have um, HR analyst and some sort of four-level HR. I don't remember how it's described, but um, it just felt like different HR doing different pieces to the pie. But in smaller companies, you know, less than a thousand employees perhaps, you may not have all of that. So therefore, you don't have enough resources for it. So, but it's probably easier for you to collect the data from a smaller organization. So know the number for your organization. How much is your company losing in absences? every year, sickness absences particularly. And if you can even narrow down how much of the sickness is related to mental health-related type issues, okay? I would also include stomach pains and that, that's just a side note. But how many hours of HR time are going towards issues that a well-trained line manager could have dealt with, really? When I talked about earlier at the top of the, um, the session about when I had to contact my HR for advice, it was usually around performance managing, somebody is not quite well or I'm not sure what to do. But frankly, I should have known some of that without having to waste their time. And sometimes I would have had to wait three, four days before I get a response because by the time they you know, see the email or get my message and whatever. So I can imagine how much time it wasted on issues that a well-trained manager could have dealt with. Use your grounded experience to flesh out the theoretical numbers, right? And what that means is you have the numbers, but then you have the antidotal stories to go with that. Anecdotal. 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 That's your favorite mispronunciation. <laughs> I know. Anecdotal. I want to know who antidotal is. I don't know why I get those two mixed up, but anyway. So let me say that again. <laughs> Use your anecdotal yeah. um, um, data to back it up stories that you've heard of. You might say, yeah, you've got a number of people who are off sick for anxiety. Um, for example, in this two cases, in this department, these were the stories of what happened. This person was there, that's what's happening. That allowed them to see you know, of the real person behind some of those numbers, right? So use that, use both of them to demonstrate to your C-suite leaders that your company is no exception to the rule. And I know a company like to think, oh, but we're doing really great here. And I'm sure you are. Majority of companies are doing the best that they can. But it doesn't mean that we can't do more. Mm. So that's the thing about the numbers. It helps you to work out, well, why are we having a 10% drop in people attending. What's this about? That allows you to find a story to now figure out a solution that will help mitigate that. I think that point about um, 
many companies thinking that they're already doing enough is a good one, right? Because let's face it, we're in a financial pickle in the UK, all right? I don't care which side of the political fence you fall. We know that times are tough. My 13-year-old was telling me, how can we in Britain be doing financially less well than Russia? Russia is paying for a war and they're in a better economic position than we are. <laughs> I don't know how she found that out. But but we all know that no matter what industry we're in, we're challenged to do better. So even if you think your well-being strategy is okay or good, it needs to be better because your people need to deliver more. We need increased productivity. So how can you increase productivity is the thing that you should be asking. It's not a question of, oh, well, this is good enough. How can it be better? That's going to really make you look like a rock star to the C-suite, isn't it? Yeah. So that brings us on to number two, tip number two, pitch solutions, not problems. Okay. So mental health, employee engagement, all that kind of stuff, bit of a downer. I get it. It's nobody wants to talk about the dark side. <laughs> well, they don't. But it is important to be addressed. And if we can give our peers, our colleagues in the boardroom solutions to resolve the problems and not just the issue of, ooh, morale is down or productivity is down or whatever, then they're much more likely to buy in. So it's important to use the numbers to demonstrate the issue. The focus of the meeting should be on the solution. Go in knowing what action you want to take and the results you expect to gain from it and the resources you need to execute this. Action. What are you asking your company to do? Are you asking for more training? If so, who do you want to train? Be specific. Result. What results do you expect to gain? What do you think the impact of the training will be? How long will it take? If you can tie this back to the numbers, the return on investment or the, the return on expectation. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. And then cost. How much is it going to cost over time? Which providers are you considering using? We'd recommend presenting the investment as broken down per head, per capita. If your well-being strategy has several layers, ensure you include this too. So phase one, phase two, phase three. Make sure your senior leadership team understands the bigger picture, even if at this stage you're only asking them to fund the first step. Let them know that it's part of a wider, longer-term plan. Be strategic. If you've got transactional one-off activities, how can you incorporate this into a wider strategic project? So if you've got speakers lined up to deliver uh, mental health time to talk day talks, how does that fit into a wider strategy around open communication on mental well-being in your organization? Align your people focus with the business objectives, both short-term and long-term goals. 
and make sure that all these actions that you have, which are all brilliant because you guys are always brilliant, make sure that they're translated into terms that your peers and colleagues in the boardroom will understand. Use their language. If you've got less than a thousand employees, you may find that you're in a much better position to access and influence the senior exec teams than those in super large organizations. So leverage that power. There's an example of Tony Meachin. I hope you don't mind me shouting you out, Tony, because it's a good thing, who's uh, the Associate Director of Health, Safety and Wellbeing at Salford University. So we met at a conference, I think I was speaking at, and um, he wanted to look at some support that we could give to the um, faculty at Salford University. So I had a, a call with him, an inqu inquiry call. He's not HR, as I said, he's in uh, health and safety. And I'd not had a, an inquiry call with someone from health and safety before. So I wasn't sure what to expect. But, but I now know the health and safety have now included well-being as part of the remit. Yeah, so, that's yeah. true. But, but he was the first one I met. Yeah. What was brilliant was he came prepared. So I'd had dozens and dozens with HR, people leaders, even some with L&D. And whenever it came to the topic of budget, it was always, no, we haven't got a budget, don't really know. Um, literally, everybody says that. I have no budget for, for this activity. How much will it cost? He simply said, I know exactly how much time is lost due to sickness and how much time is lost due to sickness caused by mental and emotional well-being issues. And I know how much on average that lost time would cost per day. And so long as you're saving us more than that, you're, you're in. He was able to give us the facts and figures. He knew how much it cost his organization. HR, you need to be as prepared, as prepared when you're talking to your colleagues in the boardroom so that you can justify in their, in their minds, make it very clear that the cost of inaction is greater than the cost of whatever solutions you've prepared. And tip number three, do not try and do it all by yourself. I repeat, do not try and do this all by yourself. HR leaders, I know you've studied a lot of subjects and you have expertise in different areas, but mental well-being, uh, mental health, it's not your expertise. It's, if at all, it's a new, brand new expertise that some people have gone to take courses on, but you're not expected to know those. So despite the pressure you may feel, it's not your job to know the ins and outs of mental health and mental well-being. So do not be afraid to bring in support. You will not be expected to fix your own broken leg because you've had a broken leg be broken before. You're not a doctor. You will definitely go and get someone to help you do it. Someone who is qualified and had done it several times over to fix your broken leg. But somehow we see organizations trying to get internal stakeholders who might have had some experience in it, personal experience, to somehow go and start creating programs around mental health. 
or someone who's taken a mental health first aid course, all of a sudden are now treating people and having conversations with somebody who's depressed about treatment. No, it is not your expertise. So ask for the expertise. Bring internal if you have them, because some organizations will have psychologists working with them. Um, some will have medical GPs even working with them. That is totally fine. Bring them in, get them to help you devise a wellbeing strategy that will work for you and your company. Let them help you with your plan. Because when you approach your senior leadership team, you have a comprehensive and effective strategy to pit to them. Do not Frankenstein it yourself. The other thing is, because you're nice people, it's so tempting for the rest of your boardroom colleagues to just dump the mental health well-being thing square at your door. And they assume that you are going to sort it, right? That wasn't why you joined HR in the first place. Otherwise, you'd, you'd probably have gone on to to be a therapist or a coach like we are. That's not what you wanted to do, but somehow it is landed and it's your responsibility to fix things. That is dangerous. Yeah, I had, there was um, a conference, online conference I attended. I can't tell you what it was called, but it was an HR one. Hmm. Um, and I was lucky to could have put, no one could ask you to put your questions in the box and whatever. And if it's a good question, people will vote on it. And I asked, the question, what I wanted to know, are HR going to be um, recruiting psychologists on their team to be able to handle some of this well-being situation? Because I was curious about it. Because if they're walking around trying to somehow figure this out themselves, then would they be thinking of hiring? And of course, my question got picked, could be a popular one. Mm. And this lovely panel of expertise, including one of the CIPD leads and all the things, were like, oh no, they're just... HR are not in the business of trying to do mental health. That's not their job. And I'm thinking, great, that's true. But also, they were like, we expect HR to know the limit, their limitation, and to hire accordingly. In other words, outside help. Because we don't necessarily need a sitting psychologist in a team. I don't expect anyone to hire me to sit in a HR team just in case some things happen. But I expect them to hire us to oversee, to consult, to get reviewed of the strategy they currently have and to make sure the EAP works well. And then we'll just go off on our merry, merry way after a few months or so. So I was happy with that response because the idea is the higher ups of HR, you know, powered maybe CIPD and the rest of it, do not feel that they could stayed where we're at, where they will now start hiring psychologists to give them internal advice. It's not necessary. And I totally agree with that. So to round off, Main thing, confidence is key here. You belong in the boardroom. You have earned your spot there. So use it wisely. And remember why you got into the work in the first place. You wanted to make a difference to people. So are you able to be that difference today? The business, the employees, they all need you to find your voice and lead. Yeah, it might be a fight, but it's a fight worth taking if it means that we can do something to reduce the mental ill health burden on your employees. And if you want to do that fight, be armed. Know your shit, pitch solutions, and don't try and do it alone. 
I know that you're a superhero, but even Iron Man had the Avengers to back him up. It did indeed. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion. If you liked what you just heard, please share it with your colleagues, follow us on LinkedIn, the link will be in the show note, and generally show us some love. We want to build a whole army of fellow rebels who want to create positive workplaces for everyone. Will you join the rebellion? See you next time.